This is Joseph Gervasi. I'm here with Larry Livermore, and we are conducting this interview at Cinder Garden on Baltimore Avenue in West Philadelphia. Today is May 20, 2016, and this is part of Loud Fast Philly. And uh, I should note that, like with some of the interviews in the series, uh, Larry is not a Philadelphia person. Um, but he is here for a Loud Fest Philly speaking event, and uh, I know that his work has had influence on a lot of people in Philadelphia, myself included. So having the opportunity to interview him, I certainly wanted to, to take that up and, and have that here. So uh, consider this to be slightly uh, out of the focus of the project. Uh, anyway, Larry, uh, welcome, and thanks for coming to do the uh, interview and the event. Thank you, Joe. I don't want to talk so much about the book because I think that, as I said to you in an email, I think the book speaks really well for itself. Uh, but I was curious, uh, what was your impetus to write the book? Uh, and, and how then has it been received by people since it's been published? Well, that's kind of an open-ended question. I, you really have to say, what's the impetus for writing any book? Mm -hmm. um, I think maybe the uh, answer I, I had, I actually had to, I was kind of blocked for a long time before I started writing and having a hardest time getting started. And somebody, a very wise person, suggested that I sit down and take write out a piece, piece of paper that says, why are you doing this? I mean, you want to get rich? Do you want to get famous? Do you want people to understand you or feel sorry for you? What's mm -hmm. your What's your story here? And, and I gave some thought to it and realized I was all muddled up. But I fell back, I fell back on this uh, community radio station that I was involved with uh, well, some 20, 30 years ago. Their motto was to inform, entertain, and inspire. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, that's about it. You know, I, I've had a lot of adventures um, that resulted in stuff that touched a lot of people's lives. So I, I could probably inform them about it, and some of the stories are pretty funny or touching or moving, and I could entertain them and hopefully inspire them to to do to do something with that with mm -hmm. that knowledge to maybe you know carry on from you know I mean there's a, it's not like my story has an exact beginning and end, but I'm not as active in that scene as I once was. Somebody else needs to take it up, and they oh, I see what they were trying to do. Maybe I could add something to that, or maybe I could even do it a whole lot better now that I can see how he screwed up. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, when I first started thinking about writing it, it was many years ago, when, which was pretty much at the time I left Lookout, or even before I left Lookout. And then, if I had written it then, it would have been very different. It would have been all me trying to justify myself and say, see how awesome I was and look at how everybody else screwed me up and blah, mm -hmm. blah, blah. You know, very self-pitying and self-indulgent. And so thank goodness I waited a long time before before doing it because I was able to put it in perspective and ultimately accept responsibility myself for both the, the good and the bad that came out of it. How many years were there between the demise of, or, or rather your leaving Lookout and then when you began to work in earnest on the book? Well, I, I left at the beginning of early in 1997, and actually I started trying to write about it in around 2002 or three, but that was a 
fiasco. I, I actually wrote a, a very long book and threw it away. Um, it, and only a third of that was about punk and lookout. The other two were about the other phases of my life. It was basically like a four or five hundred page life story, which had a lot of. I was just looking at the manuscript the other day, the only remaining copy, and I was like, wow, this wasn't as horrible as I remembered, but mm -hmm. it was not publishable. Is it? Do you think that elements of it are salvageable for future works? I'm not sure why I would bother, because I think that the two books I've done now are, you know, just much, much better and much more honest and and useful. And I've got two more books planned. That, or in pro uh, one already in process. Is because that's something that you can mention what what that's about. Well, the the uh, my first book was. Uh, I mean, I always intended to write about Lookout first, and actually to finish up with your previous question, I I didn't actually start this current book uh, about Lookout until twenty thirteen, I guess twenty fourteen, right after my first book was published. Um, but I, I, my first book was about going to live in the mountains and giving up on punk and giving up on society and the city and everything and go live in the wilderness and that, by a bizarre twist of fate, which is too long to recount here, but ended up in getting involved in a band and a magazine and a record label and you know basically all the stuff I was trying to get away from finally came to fruition in, in the wilderness 20 miles from the nearest town and stuff. Um, the f books to come are, well, the next, the next one that's in process now, it's the, I guess, the third part of a memoir, and it, it talks about living in England, or first becoming involved with England when I first visited in the 70s, and then gradually being drawn in and uh, moving there after I left Lookout, and kind of coming to terms with the whole new culture and becoming integrated into it. It's a, a common theme that goes through all three memoirs is like the stranger in a strange land. Like uh, I didn't knew nothing about country life or wilderness life or fighting off bears or stuff like that, but I had to learn. And mm -hmm. ditto for running a record label and a company and having employees and all of that kind of stuff. You know, in the in the cultural hothouse of of uh, left wing punk rock. Mm -hmm. So, and you know, the third is in that same sort of scope. I'm like this clueless American that suddenly is in England where everything looks similar but is actually quite different and mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure it out. How do I belong? Or where do I belong? Do I belong? Yeah. And how do I negotiate the, the differences? What part of me do I hang on to? And what part of me do I say, oh, okay, maybe you guys got something here I can adapt and learn from. Mm -hmm. You, know, I, you may have uh, probably addressed this in the first book, which I haven't read, but I, I've read other things that you've written during the time that you, you were living out in, the, in Northern California in the, in the country. How was it that you supported yourself when you lived there? I mean, I hear about you, you know, cutting logs and building a water system and all that, but what was your means of actual living uh, there? Well, a couple things. Uh, one was that um, not while I was there, it had, that had already ended, but... Uh, Previously, in my hippie era, in my hippie days, I got involved in LSD distribution, mm -hmm. and I was, a, I was a, not a widely known. It was a very underground trade, but it uh, it produced a lot of income 
considering. Um, and this is what early seventies. Uh, in the seventies, yeah. Okay. By the by the eighties, I had kind of I was not really. I I didn't have like the toughness or the stick to 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 really pursue, and I got ba basically elbowed out of the way by younger, more aggressive uh, dealers. Were you working exclusively with LSD or with yeah. others? Okay. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I used uh, a lot of other drugs in my hippie days, starting in the late 60s, 67 actually, but the only one that I ever had any success with distributing, and, and it was... This is coming from Owsley himself? Close, but not quite. Uh, no, he was, I think he was already in jail. I had a funny story, actually, of meeting him many, many years later in the 90s. Um, when did he, and, and when did he die? Was. I think he died in the, this century, but it was it's funny, as you may have heard, his uh, nickname was Bear, which which I don't know why. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what is the origin? I have no idea, but I was visiting my friend who was a chef in a restaurant in Northern California, and we were hanging out in the kitchen, in this little guy in a ridiculous buckskin jacket from like 20 years or 30 years ago walks in and he just had a kind of an attitude, a know-it-all attitude, which doesn't suit well with those of us who already know we know it all. <laughs> right. And so I was just like making fun of him and like kind of, yeah, whatever, dude. Um, and he kind of got stroppy with me and eventually says, do you know who I am? And I'm like, no, I have no idea uh, who you are. And he says, they call me Bear. And I thought, well, that's, I said, that's a funny name for a little guy like you. <laughs> I've, I've lived in the country. I know bears are big and strong. <laughs> and he just grumble, grumble, and then he stomped out. And afterwards, my friend said, you know who that was, don't you? And I'm like, no, he was kind of annoying. And he said, that's Owsley. Um, like, I'm like, oh, I consumed a fair few of his products back in, in the day. Uh, no, there, but there was a, a fairly esoteric and close-knit fraternity of LSD chemists and distributors in, in Berkeley dating back to the mid-60s, and of, you know, which Owsley was obviously one of the most well-known. Mm -hmm. um, most of the others were not well-known for good reason. I mean, Owsley right. went to prison. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a number of the others didn't. Although, by the uh, late 70s, some of them were starting to get shot and stabbed, which was another reason I didn't persist in the trade. Probably a good idea. Are you familiar with the uh, Clash song, Drug Stabbing Time? No. Uh, no. Uh, it's based... We don't know for sure, but they were hanging out in San Francisco around the time this very heinous murder happened in Berkeley, where uh, a husband and wife and her and the wife's sister were all found like with hundreds of stab wounds mm -hmm. in a in a, a luxury apartment in Berkeley, and scattered all over the floor, all around them were um, hundreds, maybe th actually thousands of hits of LSD and thousands of dollars in cash. So whoever had done it, it looked like they had just been absolutely frenzied, like stabbing them again and again and again, even, even after long after they were dead. Right. And for some reason, didn't even care about taking this small fortune of probably well, many thousands, yeah, yeah. maybe fifty thousand yeah. dollars worth of drugs and cash. And we were really uh, everybody was like, "Whoa!" But I, and the next day I went to see my associate. I only had one associate, in mm -hmm. the fraternity of. This was associate above yeah, you. Yeah, there was one. There was one below and one above. Right. So manufacturer. Well, he and, wasn't. And no, there was. It was a middleman. Uh, there were several middle people. Okay. 
and I say middleman advisedly, I'm trying to think, I don't remember there ever being women involved. It was kind of like a priesthood. Mm -hmm. But uh, I went to see my next up in line the next day, and I said, wow, did you hear about that? And Because, you know, people didn't usually associate LSD with violence. Uh, and, he's, and he's like, oh yeah, don't you know who those people were? And, uh, and I said, no, who are they? And they're, those are the people who've been supplying us. That was the, and I was like, oh my God, we're out of business. Time to move into the heroin trade. Uh, no, they just, they just uh, some, someone new filled the place and it, yeah. it went on for another couple of years until he got shot. Mm -hmm. and, and at that point, you know, because we'd been doing this for many years and it was a, like a gentleman's club, basically. Mm -hmm. um, if you, it was the most reputable organization I've ever been involved in, much more so than the record business, believe <laughs> me. And the record business wasn't bad because we were basically dealing with people of shared values. But in this one, if you were to say, hey, you know, that was that last shipment was $10,000 short, it, you know, there would be no question, no, no like prove it or anything. It would be like, oh, I'm sorry, I'll send it right over. Yeah. And I've, I've watched that happen numerous times, just like until it became normal. Whereas even with most, most uh, so-called legitimate businesses, not the case. However, this is a long story, a long way around the houses, as the British say. And by the time I went to the country, um, that had pretty much all dried up, but I did still have some money left. I also had another uh, source of income, which was a lifesaver because, and this dates back to the mid-60s. Oh, you know, actually I should ask, what, what year were you born? Uh, to uh, 1947. People? Okay. Um, in the mid-60s, I had the bright idea of setting fire to my college student union um, because I was, I had uh, I had been kicked out of college once already for drinking and they let me come back the next year, but my scholarship was taken away and I had to work in the student union and I resent, developed a real resentment against the supervisor, so I decided to set fire to the place. And, um, <laughs> Wise idea. And what, what wound up happening as a result of that? Well, I mean, was it known I, that you? It was, it was a basically brick building, so it did not burn well. I tried yeah. seven different occasions in different locations, and <laughs> basically created quite a lot of panic around the place. And they put a detective on it, and eventually he caught me. Um, and this is like an interesting little sideline. He was the first African American uh, police officer of this department. And this was his first big case, and he was actually a very nice guy. He had caught me for a few other things previously, and he mm -hmm. always was like, "Oh my God, what is your parents? Your mom and dad must be so upset. Like, here you are, the first boy in your class to go, or your first boy in your family to go to college, and you just keep getting in trouble. You, you better stop breaking your mom and dad's heart." And which was all true, and I knew that, but I couldn't stop. So he he nailed me down for the arson charges and got out a law book and said, okay, I said, 20 years to life. And, mm -hmm. and, but he said, I think I might be able to talk to some people who can treat it as a mental health issue instead. And I'm like, sure, I'll be crazy if that's what, <laughs> what you want. So they took me to the local mental hospital instead. And the shrinks weren't really buying it. They were like, no, he's just a spoiled, uh, self-centered brat with no conscience or, you know, you know he, he needs to go in the army. Mm -hmm. But everybody else insisted that I needed to be treated for mental illness, and 
ironically, it happened just the opposite. I couldn't, this was at the height of the Vietnam War, but I could no longer, I, I was on the verge of being drafted. I already had my physical and was ready to be enlisted, but mm -hmm. oh no, he can't go because he has a history of pyromania. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, of course, they're over in Vietnam burning down whole villages and you could, you, you could have excelled and at your job. Some of the some of the guys from my street gang did in fact do just that. They mm -hmm. all enlisted en masse. Luckily I was hung over and passed out the morning that they all went to enlist in the Marines. And I missed out. And then about a year later this happened and uh, so I was not allowed to go to Vietnam, which kind of freed me up for, you know, in those days you either had to stay in college or you got drafted immediately. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have to go to college or do anything, really. Um, and so I started, kind of left, left behind the greaser life and sort of joined the hippie life at that point. But this is a long round, you'll see this, two parts to this apparently giant screw-up where I, um, you know, I'm facing prison or insane asylum, my life seems to be over at 19, if I was, I don't think I was even, I was barely 18 or 19. Mm -hmm. um, I, so much so that I swallowed all the pills in my parents' medicine cabinet trying to commit suicide and woke up the next morning just with a bad headache. That's what I thought my life was over, but first I'm out of the war, and second, about a year or two later, when I was kind of homeless and on the skids, uh, somebody said, why don't you go apply for vocational rehabilitation at the, in the county because it, they'll help you go back to school or job training or whatever. I went in there and said, oh, they said, man, you're, you're too messed up. And I started crying and they said, oh, but don't worry, we'll put you on, on a program where you get money every month. Until um, so you're on the dull. So basically, well, eventually they discovered that I had already worked long enough to qualify for Social Security because I had worked in the factories and steel mills for a number of years growing up uh, over in, in the interim and so yeah they put me on Social Security disability for a number of years uh, so that really freed up my time and uh, it was well at first it was a, it was enough to live pretty well on for a young person with no ambition mm -hmm. uh, they, I, they gave me $240 a month, which out of which I rented a, a house in San Francisco with four bedrooms. So yeah, five that's certainly a long time ago then. Yeah, five of us lived there, yeah. and there was $90 left over for, for drugs and booze and stuff. And well, you, you mentioned growing up in a working class family, yeah. so and you alluded to the fact that there was some friction with your family in regards to the direction that you were taking, and I can imagine that there would be a considerable amount of friction because if you were the the boy who was supposed to go to college and better yourself and this is what you were doing, then it must have been tremendously frustrating for them. Heartbreaking, most likely, yeah. Uh, I didn't... Uh, I didn't find out about it, uh, a lot of it until many years later because, as I, as I mentioned, I was very self-centered and thought only about what was good for me or what I wanted. I didn't really communicate with much with my parents. They were just, well, like with a lot of teenagers and young people, they were just those annoying people that are always nagging you and stuff. But in later life, I got to be pretty close to my mom, and we would sit and talk for hours. And she one time told me about how, well, my dad, he's very old-fashioned and didn't believe you were supposed to show your your feelings or your emotions. And your, 
always wanted to keep, like, for years he wouldn't tell the neighbors or the relatives, like all the relatives thought I must have died or dropped off the face of the earth, not just me, but a couple of my siblings too. He just wouldn't, he'd say, oh, they'd say, oh, how's, how's Larry doing? Oh, oh not, not, not so much. <laughs> um, and there was a, a year, a, a year when I got in trouble with the police and had to disappear for a mm -hmm. while. Ran around the country and being underground. It was 1968. That was the year for going underground. <laughs> right. Yeah. So there was a network that existed. Yeah, at but that time. Uh, I didn't know during that. I, I mean, obviously, I couldn't contact my parents because they would know. Then they might tell the police. So, so for a year, they had no idea if I was alive or dead or where I was. And the first inkling they got was when the police like kicked in their door in their quiet little working class suburb and. Mm -hmm. On a Sunday afternoon, and came in with guns drawn, and like, where is he? Where is he? <laughs> Jesus! And they they hadn't seen me in a few months, and they had no idea where I was. Mm -hmm. uh, and then for the rest of that year, basically, my mom told me this. She told me this fifty years later, but uh, she was just like, I, I I couldn't even talk to your father about it. He would just if I brought your name up, he would just like grunt and look the other way as if like I said a bad word or something mm -hmm. and and so I would go down to the basement to the fruit cellar and close the door and cry and pray for you um, so he wouldn't see me mm -hmm. and that was like my life that whole year did you ever come to any sort of understanding with him yeah I'm um, not not anywhere near as good as with her because in later life he got uh, he was afflicted by a uh, Parkinson's disease and dementia and when he finally became vulnerable enough to actually talk to you know he was not capable of making a lot of sense he could he could get him to tell stories about like the he was born in 1913 and so he, he could get him to tell stories about those days. Mm -hmm. um, he remembered like seeing the soldiers march off to World War One and airplanes flying overhead when it was still a big deal to see airplanes. Mm -hmm. His first crystal radio set in 1920 when they first started having radio broadcasts. Mm -hmm. But uh, he finally told me a little bit about the war, which I had never... He was in World War Two. Yes, he was. And he had never said a word about... I mean. On my block, pretty much everybody's dad was in the war, mm -hmm. and they were all, oh, what's your dad doing in the war? How many Germans did he kill? And they, oh, he didn't kill Germans, he killed Japs, yeah, you know, so. that kind of, you know, bragging. And, and I'd come home, Dad, what, who, what did you do in the war? Who did you kill? And he'd like, I didn't kill anybody. Just, there was nothing. We just rode around in a truck. What theater of war was he in? He was in, uh, in France, Germany, and Belgium, and Germany. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, when he was 80... Nine, I took him out for a, a ride in my truck, and just to, by now he was fairly mobile, but he still liked to go out and look at things. So I took him through some of the old neighborhoods and stuff, and got him talking. And he told me for the first time that you know about riding down the Rhine River, and they could only do it on moonless nights because the German the Rhine's not very wide, and they could see the Germans on the other side, and the Germans could see them, and then the Germans were shooting cannons at them, mm -hmm. and uh, and it was absolutely terrifying and he said normally I drove the truck but one night I was riding in the in the back 
uh, with the other men and somebody else was driving and a shell came across and landed in the driver's seat and blew him up. Uh, wow. Uh, and I'm like, Dad, you know, like this sounds absolutely terrifying, but like obviously a extremely powerful experience. Why have you never told anybody about mm -hmm. it? And he said, oh, a lot of men like to talk, but it just comes across like bragging and showing off, and I didn't want to be like that. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that was probably one of the last really coherent conversations that we had. And he just like slipped away further after that. His, unlike my mother, his, his death was a kind of a ugly and brutal thing. Um, he didn't really know where he was or what he was doing, he kept clutching at his hospital gown. Where, where's, where's my wallet and keys? I gotta go get, pick up your mother. Um, yeah, yeah, death like that can be very infantilizing, and, and you oh, really it was. see yeah, we someone. We had to change diapers. Yeah, yeah. My mom and I, and it was that was the beginning, beginning. And whereas she went right up to all, she was three days short of ninety-seven. Wow, went to went, went to went to regular weekly mass with her friends. Mm -hmm. Catholic. And, yeah, mm -hmm. and when they dropped her off back at the house, uh, they. She had fallen asleep in the back seat, and I mean, she had just like five minutes earlier had been talking to the priest, and like he told me later, she said, he said, how are you doing, Lois? How's it going? And she said, oh, sometimes, Father, I just feel so tired. I don't know why God keeps me alive so long. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, he must have a reason. Uh, he must have a purpose for you. And she says, I suppose you're right. And then got in the car, and uh, when, she, and when they, they couldn't wake her up at the house five minutes away, took her to the hospital. She did wake up one last time at midnight just to tell my brothers, oh, stop hanging around and go home. This is a bunch of foolishness. I'll just come see me in the morning. Mm -hmm. The minute they left, then she just closed her eyes and was gone. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, perfectly healthy every day up until then. I had just gotten off the phone with her a few hours earlier when we were planning her birthday celebration because I was on my way there a couple of days later. Uh, it was right at the time that it was a, kind of a real symmetry. It was a, like the book launch party was going on when I got the news. And oh, this is recently then? Yeah, in December. Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, uh. So, uh, yeah, so I got to spend a lot of time learning about and talking with her. Not with him, but she, I guess, secondhand, she told me a lot about him. And I'm like, oh my God, you married, you married this guy for 54 years. And, like, never got to have an opinion uh, and she said oh, that's how it was with my parents too mm -hmm. i was reading your rereading your essay in uh, threat by example uh the martin sprouse uh edited book uh and in that you you talk about how you uh sniffed glue which you said was something you weren't particularly proud of but that it opened a, a certain doorway uh, in your mind that I think LSD wound up opening more later, where you perceived yourself as part of something greater or bigger, and, and that up to that point, and you know, I'm paraphrasing something you wrote a few decades ago, but up to that point, you hadn't really perceived yourself as this part of this bigger thing. And I was just curious about your experiences with, with LSD initially, if you feel that they've made you in some way a better person or have, have worked in, in a positive way in your life. It's a good question and one that I want to tread very carefully around. Uh, as ironically, I'm right now reading a history of LSD. In fact, I've read several lately, but I'm reading what I think may be one of the better ones called Storming Heaven, um, with the idea that we're familiar with the, uh, the legend of the Tower of Babel, 
mm -hmm. where the people thought, oh, well, we'll just use technology and build a tower up to heaven, and why should we wait till we die to go to heaven? We'll just get up there and, on our own brilliance. Mm -hmm. And that it was kind of that same analogy that, you know, LSD or other psychedelic drugs could be a shortcut to, to get you to higher consciousness. But, you know, and I bought into that wholesale in the 60s. Reading this book, it's just like, almost every page I'm like, oh my God, these people are idiots. And, and yet they were the people that we were looking to, you know, mm -hmm. Timothy Leary and his gang, were that we were looking to for inspiration and guidance at that time. Um, you know, the part of the book that I'm at right now is, uh, it, it's eerily familiar. It's like we're, we spent like weeks and months getting enlightened and cosmically conscious every day. Well, meanwhile, our whole lives were spiraling, and spiraling into ruin. I mean, we're, rent wasn't paid, uh, cleaning wasn't done, we are becoming homeless and unemployable and unable to carry on a normal conversation with a normal human being. Mm -hmm. And yet we, we thought, we were convinced, we were like so cosmic that the problem was that everybody else was like on such a much lower level they couldn't relate to us. But do you, do you think that there's an intelligent manner of using this? I mean, if that's so excessive that it pulls you out of the world, uh, that there's a way that you could, you can use this as a tool properly. What actually got me started uh, down this train of thought was an article in the New York Times the other day where apparently they're starting to do laboratory research again with LSD. For yeah, that's what I was going to get at. For is a number that, of years that mm -hmm. wasn't allowed, whereas the whole drug hippie revolution started with laboratory experiments in the 50s and 60s, including those by the CIA. And yeah, MKUltra. Um, yeah. Um, honestly, I think that all of those drugs do have a certain function, but I would be extremely reluctant, in fact, not, not just reluctant, I would refuse to recommend them for people uh, because it's kind of it's kind of like I don't know if you'd be familiar with this living out east, but in the in the west in the forest, if there's a forest fire, they sometimes will start a, another forest, a controlled burn to try to mm -hmm. to kind of make a gap so it yeah. can't yeah. But as often as not, those get out of control, and mm -hmm. you know, so it's a perfectly you could say well you could use one of these drugs kind of to burn away all of the BS and the, the illusions that are clustering in your, in, your, in your mind, but based on experience, in probably more cases than not, it, it goes out of control and burns up the rest of your brain too. Mm -hmm. um, it's the, the allusion to the uh, glue sniffing is, a, is an interesting one because obviously uh, nobody in their right mind should be sniffing glue. Uh, for everything I know about it, it's extremely damaging to the brain and yeah. other body parts. And yet, that one time, it did indeed give me a cosmic experience, not unlike what people describe getting from LSD or psilocybin or peyote. Uh, and it was, in fact, I don't know, I haven't read that essay you speak of in a long, long time, but uh, I don't, so I don't know how well I did at describing it. Uh, but it did, it, created the illusion of my having left my body and looking down on myself lying there on the bed and that in turn led me to to see 
that there was like some kind of life force that united the the whole cosmos. Mm -hmm. Well, I think at that time I only got as far as the planet rather than the universe, but I literally felt pain in my side from war. I mean, this will sound, it is very hippy-dippy, but I suddenly felt this pain of like something in the world is not right, and I was thinking of the mm -hmm. Vietnam War, which up until that point, I, like most blue-collar guys, I had thought was a great idea. Got to fight the communists, you know? And in literally five minutes, I switched from being pretty strongly pro-war to being like, oh my God, this is horrible, it has to stop. Mm -hmm. And then within a few days longer, uh, later I was off to New York for my first anti-war march with uh, Stokely Carmichael and Martin Luther King and Benjamin Spock. And yeah, it's, I guess it's hard to give any credit to sniffing glue, it sounds like the worst thing in the world, but yet it seems like it put you on a certain trajectory. Well, I'm not going to give the credit to glue, because I, or to LSD. Um, I mean, I haven't taken any of those substances in 20 years, 30 years more, something like that. Uh, and I think that in actual fact they do more harm than good because they create the simulacrum of a spiritual experience. Marijuana even, maybe even more so because it's kind of constant, chronic, as they say. Um, that you can... If you're a regular marijuana smoker, you can go through life thinking like, wow, I'm really tuned in, I feel all the colors, and I see all these insights. Mm -hmm. But no, you don't, actually. You have, like, as I said, a simulacrum. You have, like, a, a very good reproduction. It's kind of like constantly, it's like the Truman Show. It's like constantly watching something on TV and mm -hmm. thinking you're a part of it, but the minute the... the TV goes off, or electricity fails, or the show goes off the air, you're like, yeah. wait, now what? Yeah, or the pot supply runs out. Well, it, yeah, yeah, as the old Grateful Dead joke, uh, you know, when what, the, what did the deadhead say when the pot ran out? Oh, man, this music sucks. <laughs> Which is not true, actually. The Grateful Dead actually sound a lot better without drugs than they... That might be a debatable point. I do like the Grateful Dead, though, but... Uh, well, no, not all well, up to, not a, all up to a certain they, period. They're an interest, they followed an interesting trajectory, too, and when they started in the mid-60s, they were basically a chemistry experiment. Uh, depending on what chemicals were in their system, when they went on stage, it would either be like an embarrassing or transcendent. Mm -hmm. By about the beginning of the 70s, they had become pretty decent musicians, but were not like completely overtaken by wankiness and pretension. And at that point, they were just, they were just pretty great. And that music holds up really well. And then as years went on, they got into hard drugs and a fairly decadent lifestyle. And I don't know. I haven't really explored their their work. Their in fact, in fact, by that time, by that time, I was like fully engr engrossed in punk, and I spent a lot of my time like ridiculing them and making people mad at me by saying how fat Jerry Garcia was. And that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, I go up to about 1974, and that's my cutoff point for the yeah, day. Yeah, and I probably cut off a little sooner than that because. By seven, by by the early seventies, I was already getting involved in what you would call proto punk right. and art punk and and, and well glam rock first, but that kind of evolved. You know, um, first we had uh, had Iggy and Ziggy and uh, T Rex, and that kind of went into New York Dolls, and that kind of went into the Ramones. Mm -hmm. and, you know, at any point you could have diverged off into a a whole different direction, like 
a lot of the glam rockers went off into disco instead of into, into the dolls and, and yeah. the clones. But. Mm-hmm. In the the book, you mentioned that for uh, a period of time you had considered committing. Oh, oh wait, let me, I want to finish up that drug thing. One uh, I actually, yeah. I, because I I deal with uh, some form of, of consciousness probably you know all the time these days, especially through my Tai Chi practice, which has lasted through a lot of this all back in '77, and you know it's a lot harder work to attain awareness through meditation or yoga or Tai Chi or the many other forms, but it's actually the real deal uh, as opposed to, you know, taking a pill or or smoking something and, you know, just just as, you know, creating your own movie or play or book is a lot different. But if you take the LSD, it's essentially or the psilocybin, a guaranteed experience. I mean, if you if you take it, you are going to, you know, within you're a certain quantity, an, you're going to have an experience. You're going to have an experience, just like if you turn on your TV, provided that there's electricity that's on the air, you're going to have an experience, but it might suck and it might be brilliant. Yeah, but it, it's clearly going to be an, an intense experience, whether it's yeah, terrible or wonderful, it's my, a guaranteed my, What experience. I've come to believe over time is that although it promises enlightenment, and it, well, does it promise the enlightenment, or is it your expectation? I mean, it doesn't well, promise anything because it's a, it's well, a substance. The, the people who started experimenting with it in the 40s and 50s, that was what they seemed to be finding, and they couldn't wait to tell everybody else. I mean, it really spread rapidly. Mm-hmm. It was the first guy that accidentally took LSD, its discoverer, said, oh my God, I saw and felt things that I never dreamed were possible. And then other people started saying, oh yeah, that sounds like what it says in the holy books from mm-hmm. the ancient India and, and so on. Uh, so then you got like kind of a hybrid of scientists and spiritual seekers and they decided, well in fact the, the book I'm reading talks about like some of them wanted to just do it like serious science where others thought, no, this is too great, we have to give this to everybody yeah, in the, the world. People, yeah. Like a sacrament, yeah, yeah. like the it's Christians the Catholic, would yeah. give the... The, the Holy Eucharist, mm-hmm. and honestly, you know, this might self, sound a little self-serving, but when I talk about us distributing LSD back in those days, we really, honestly, sincerely felt we were not doing this for the money, although there was money involved, but mm-hmm. because we were doing a, a service to humanity, mm-hmm. and that therefore we were invulnerable to getting arrested or bad stuff happening to us, and, and for many years nothing did. Mm-hmm. It was like you know, I had hair-raising adventures of walking right through places where I should have been arrested or killed. Uh, just it was as if I was like had some magical force field around me. Right. Whereas I can virtually guarantee that today, if I were to take one dose of LSD and go down to the corner and sell it to a, a nice person for two dollars or whatever they cost, I would get instantly arrested or worse mm-hmm. because I know that that's not my as they say in Chinese, the, my Tao, or in, in India, yeah. it's not my Dharma. It's not, I know better now. But well, at, at that time, I believed that it was uh, good for people. Well, it seems like now, in, in the way that it's the, there are experiments going on uh, throughout the world on its possible, probable, uh, possible positive effects uh, mm-hmm. in treating PTSD or depression, that there is kind of a shift in the zeitgeist towards perhaps there is a positive effect of this I'll substance. I'll try to keep an open mind on it. Uh, I personally would not 
allow myself to be experimented on in that. But well, I shouldn't even say never say, I should never say never because who knows, at some point in the future I may acquire some kind of condition where that might seem might seem dictated. I doubt it, but in believing what I do now, it's unlikely. Right, yeah. It's probably, um, probably wouldn't even use it I, in you. I mean, uh, you know, people like me who were very quick to experiment with these drugs tended to be people who had problems like depression or, mm -hmm. I don't know, if, I mean, post-traumatic stress disorder hadn't been invented yet, but I probably had something like it from a uh, number of unhappy experiences I had as a young person. Um, um, you know, I had incipient alcoholism. Um, LSD was supposed to help all of those things, but, you know, I was still depressed long after I was taking LSD. I was still drinking. I mean, it, a lot of people, when they started taking acid, stopped drinking temporarily because the two things kind of seemed at odds. But Timothy Leary himself, after he'd gone, I mean, he was a heavy drinker. In fact, people who knew him, you know, personally, I knew his son, but not him personally. They said, oh, yeah, you know, he, he talks about acid all the time, but his favorite drugs are amphetamine and scotch. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, after about five years, I, I could take a heavy dose of LSD and down a bottle of whiskey, too, so much for curing alcoholism. And um, I was periodically or sometimes chronically depressed until I gave up all drugs. Yeah, I imagine that the, the the medical use is a much more structured environment and not just, you know, somebody dumping a bunch of chemicals yeah. into themselves and expecting one to of see the, something uh, else. One of the interesting things you often hear about is like Aldous Huxley, the, the writer and who was an early pioneer who wrote the book The Doors of Perception. Perception yeah. um, when he discovered he was dying, uh, uh, he asked to be injected with a huge dose, like uh, probably the equivalent of several thousand doses of mm -hmm. LSD for his last few hours and he seemed to be quite content with that. I'm not sure I would want to do that, but then hopefully I'm not dying at the moment, but uh, I would prefer... At to least be, not in Philadelphia, please, Larry. I, I would prefer to be conscious for my death, but you know, you know, some people believe that they would... I mean, my aversion to any drugs does not extend to like if you want to do surgery on me yes you can use anesthetic and painkillers right? yeah yeah um, but so maybe maybe I I was suffering from a certain condition I would say okay do that experiment on me but you know I, I probably took LSD about a thousand times over a, about a 13 year period so uh, I think I've done enough experiments for, for myself and honestly the last number of uh, drug-free and alcohol-free years have been by far the best in my life and the years in which I've actually done work that I can be proud of and behaved generally in a way that I can be respectful of. Do you think that that amount of LSD use has had a long-term detrimental effect on your brain or your self? Hard to say uh, and also hard to say how long the effect was. I mean, I still think in, I guess you might say, cosmic terms that some people might get caused, especially younger people that might, or punks, might cause them to dismiss me as a hippie. Whereas to me, it's like, you know, I talk about Chinese Taoism, which is not that different to some of the hippie philosophy, except there's no drugs involved. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I don't know. It may it may still be affecting me. I will say though that I was a regular marijuana smoker, which is kind of like miniature LSD. Mm -hmm. um, for from 1967 till the early 90s, then I stopped, and then I had one more nightmarish experience where I tried it in 2001, and that's the last, literally just two hits of it, and after that I never touched it again, and it scares the hell out of me. Cause it's so you have the edge now? Um, I guess you might say that, although I like caffeine. Um, um, but I found that after I stopped completely, the you know the effects of alcohol wore off within well, certain effects wore off in within days and others in weeks or months. The marijuana, I it was three or four years before I said, wait a minute, that stuff I used to think when I was high on marijuana all the time, I don't think that anymore. And wow, that was pretty whack. Were there some particular ideas that you had then on the marijuana that you completely jettisoned when it was out of your system completely? Well, I think the uh, the spiritual aspect of it, you you tend, and I don't want to generalize for all marijuana smokers, although I've known quite a few, you tend to become very self-obsessed, but self-obsessed in a, in a very narrow sense. Like, you're at the you're at the center of the universe and and yet you have you're like the universe is fucked so what's wrong with me why it's either there something's wrong with all of them or something's wrong with me but i'm smarter than all of them so mm -hmm. something's not you know basically yeah. and you just go round and round in circles it's it's basically you kind of uh declare yourself a, 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 high, a deity, but a highly flawed deity. Mm -hmm. um, people who are regularly high on marijuana, not, there are exceptions. I know, I know two or three people who function pretty, seem to function pretty well on it, um, who have very high-powered jobs and involving lives of the mind. Um, most of them, though, they're kind of like engaged in a lot of uh, self-pity and uh, kind of oh like if only if only everybody understood what a genius I am blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, and I I don't know there's like uh, there's one, like this one old crusty guy in New York once said you know the only thing you gotta know about God kid is that there is one and you ain't it and it's kind of the exact opposite of the marijuana. Uh, I mean, most marijuana smokers would probably tell you they don't believe in God, and yet they act as if they were mm -hmm. that that person themselves, and they expect to see the whole world kind of coming to them. And when it does, then everything is right with the universe. And when it doesn't, which is most of the time, then yeah, the universe eh. is fucked. If they can only yeah, I need to smoke some more weed. <laughs> yeah. All right, switching the, the subject a bit in. In the book, you talk uh, a bit about how you were considering committing suicide, and you had written a really long, a huge volume of, uh, I guess, a suicide note, in effect. Uh, I mean, what... Yeah, um, long suicide note in history. Yeah, and this, you, you, I think you said, was many hundreds of pages long. I think about 482 at last. Jeez. Uh, um, so what, what was it type, that... Typewritten. I, I, mean, I don't know how it would be handwritten. Uh, 
quite impressive. Are you single space or double space? I think it's one and a half. Yeah, right, fair enough. Good, good medium level. But uh, oh you, no, but you know, it's single space. Yeah, right. you you mentioned this uh, it's, in it's the book. computer. I could go find it. For you. <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll we'll have this as an addendum. Uh, but what what was it then that you were writing in for all of these hundreds of pages? What well, were you expressing in this in this? Look back to what I just told you about marijuana. Even mm. even though at that time, yeah, I wasn't really smoking marijuana, but I had not really cut loose from the mindset. It was a lot of that. Like uh, the biggest thing that I was writing about was what a terrible but beautiful tragedy it was that such a great person as myself was not able to live in this world any longer and you people really need to know how painful it all was and how unfair it all was and how much you'll be missing me once I'm gone. To the tune of hundreds of pages? To yeah. Me? Yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you really want to make sure to get the point because, you know, if you're going to be dead, like, you can't come back and say, oh, I forgot to tell you that. <laughs> One more thing. Yeah, yeah well, there's, you know, all of, there's a lot of tragedy there. What was it that was so horrible that, that had you presumably seriously considering doing this? Um, I think... I'm, I mean, mostly uh, failed relationships. I, I felt like, I mean, this actually, I was never really a big success in the whole relationship thing, even all the way back to, to school days. But, um, you know, eventually I muddled through into like a, a couple of sort of relationship. But as I got older, and I, I suspect you know, part of the problem might have been that I, I tended to be 10, 15, 20 years older than most of the people I, I met. And even though I acted like considerably less than my age, um, there was a, you know, a difference in values and aspirations especially. Um, so I tended to get obsessed with people and of course that's not a very attractive quality anyway mm -hmm. and so you know it became a self-fulfilling prophecy i'd get obsessed with someone they would be like oh my god get away from me you weirdo and uh and then i say see that proves i'm just there's a smith song called unlovable I love, yeah yeah i know you um, yeah and you know so i basically was in fact i had not long before that, as I mentioned in the book, I think gotten into the Smiths and for the first time before I refused to listen to them in the 80s because they weren't punk, but in the, in the 90s I like, oh yes, this is telling my story, it's so tragic. No one understands you like Morris, he does. Yeah, well, I didn't think he did either because he's more self-centered than me, but... Um, God, I hope so. There's a Smith song where he's uh, Sing Me to Sleep and... Uh, I'm tired, I don't want to wake, wake up, up anymore yeah. on my own, and there's another one where you can feel the soil falling over his head. Yeah. You know, these were all the kinds of thoughts that I was having, and, you know, and wanted to say them at least as beautifully as, as the Smiths, um, so that people for generations to come would cry over, oh, well, he was so misunderstood, he mm -hmm. was such a beautiful soul, if only somebody had, like, appreciated him he would might still be with us doing great work but instead this cruel heartless world cast him out and he had to go off and sit on an iceberg in the north of iceland <laughs> and freeze to death it was a very unique way of considering offing yourself um but i think it would have been i think it would have been 
in reality, actually quite a terrible thing for some people if you did that. Because I think a lot of people have read your work and have followed your creative output. And they would see you as someone who has devoted themselves to doing a creative thing through their whole life. And if in, at that stage, that person felt that they needed to kill themselves, that they couldn't continue to live, I think that for a lot of people who, who really appreciated what you've done, would almost say to them, maybe it can't be sustained. Maybe I can't possibly live this life outside of society because here's someone who clearly seemed to be a success at doing these things and always had these interesting, provocative ideas, and yet they couldn't live. Yeah, I think, I think that happens to quite a few people. Um, you know, not putting myself in the same category, but artists and rock stars and things like that, a lot of them when they get past the glamorous years and they find, wait a minute, and like nobody worships me anymore, and a lot of them do either commit suicide or drink or drug themselves to death, which are variations on the same theme. Mm -hmm. And and a lot of young people will idolize them or you know say, oh, it's it's tragic, and a lot of them emulate them by saying, well, if Kurt or whoever couldn't live, I'd better do the same drugs they did and yeah. follow in his footsteps. Yeah, which is, I think fucking terrible uh, and when someone can sustain a creative life past age 27 and retain this vitality to me that sets an example for younger people and says you can do this uh, you know here's the things I did wrong here's the things I did right you can sustain a life outside of the norm what's been prescribed for you but it certainly would be crushing for some people to see well maybe not you know Maybe, it, maybe it's not possible because this person, if, if he couldn't do it, after all of these things that he's, he's written and done, then how can I? I think there's a, also a danger in that while much of the world's great art, music, whatever, is created by people who are quite young, and sometimes shockingly so, even in their teens or early 20s, the vast majority of people who are not geniuses but still may have some very valuable things to offer. I mean, a lot of them don't do their best work until they're 30 or 40 or 50, and until they finally, you know, got their feet on the ground and got a sense of themselves. Um, and so, by the same token, people that say, oh, my 27-year-old my rock hero that couldn't deal with turning 40, so he died. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there's that, but there's also the ones that's like, I'm turning 27 now and I haven't written my masterpiece yet, so I might as well die. Um, yeah. uh, you know, and I would like, if possible, to serve as an example. I mean, I didn't even start this whole Lookout Records thing or writing, you know, writing a column or stuff or publishing a magazine until I was, well, you know, almost 40. Mm -hmm. I mean, my first Maxim Rock and Roll column was a year, I turned 40. The, year my band made our first record. Uh, the record label started that later that year when I was 40. Do you feel that that gives you then a certain responsibility and that you know that when, when you say something, more people are going to pay attention to what you say than what a lot of people would say? And I have yet to be convinced of that. Uh, but but I, I, I would certainly say that's true because you look at the number of people who will pay attention to what you're saying and you do, in effect, plant a seed well, Joe, the, I, I guess the the anomaly there is that while I, I wouldn't, obviously if people buy my books and 
a number of them write about reading my books and stuff. They're obviously paying attention. Most of these people, however, I do not meet in person. I mean, I do go out and make some speaking engagements and stuff, and me a few, but for the most part, I do not meet these people, whereas the people I actually interact with in day-to-day -day life, most of them will go to considerable lengths to show that they're not impressed by whoever, who I am or what I've done. I mean, they, they're not trying to be mean, they're just kind of, they don't want to, and I have, I have like, kind of the same problem when I, you know, I, not, it's not that unusual for me to meet somebody who's pretty famous or accomplished and, uh, and, and I get the same way, I try to not act like, oh my God, can I have your autograph, well, how did, what were you thinking when you wrote that song or that book, uh, you know, I try to treat them like normal and sometimes you can go overboard and, and insult them. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I can and say a lot that of, a lot of people do that. A lot of my my <laughs> regular associates do that regularly. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, listen to Livermore now. Look at what he blah blah blah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess I don't interact with you at all. I mean, we know each other to a certain degree. But as a young person, the year that I graduated high school, I got the Threat by Example book, uh, and that book had a big impact on me because. The, the very idea of being a threat by example, of, of being able to live an actual life outside of what was uh, perhaps prescribed for you or what you were, you were in a slot to move into, was a provocative idea. And I looked at all of these individuals who wrote these things, uh, and this included you and, and your essay, and I saw people who were actually living something. Um, and at that age and at that time, it had a tremendous positive impact on me. So. I've watched, you know, the threads of some of these different people over the years to see how have they gone through their lives. What have, what have they done? Have they sustained this? Have they turned their back on this? Have they uh, turned away from the things that they wrote that, that were infused with an idealism? Uh, and for the most part, I think that those people that were there, the ones who I'm still aware of, um, have taken a really interesting course in life. And maybe you don't hear this directly from people, or maybe they focus more on the things that you release, but I think that the impact of those words on people, especially if they have a, a sponge-like mind who's drawing in things at a certain age, is tremendous and lasts beyond your lifetime. I mean, this isn't really a question, but this is my observation in, in, in regards to that. Well, Martin was a, a good editor and picked a, a good group of people. I mean, some of he, although he was very young himself at that time, and I recall at the time thinking, like, well, I would have picked some different people if it were me. Mm -hmm. But uh, for what he was going for, it, uh, you know, he obviously did a far better job than I could have done in, in putting the whole project together. It's interesting that that had such an impact on you because I think I still have my copy of it filed away somewhere, but I, like I, as I mentioned earlier, I haven't really looked at it. In a long time, I'm, I can vaguely recall what I said in there would come across to me now kind of as a little bit of a blowhardism, you know, me like, rah, 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 you know, you kids, I'll tell you what, rah, rah, rah. No, uh, I don't, actually, I don't think that it comes, I mean, I read the essay just a few was, days it ago. It was better edited and better written than most of the stuff I was capable of writing in those days, but I still had kind of a, a big mouth. Um, and a little, I was a little full of my, maybe more than a little full of myself in those days. Uh, it took a lot more experience and education and wisdom to 
gain a little bit of humility and start to understand how much I didn't know, mm -hmm. which was almost everything. Um, ironically, not too long after that period, I finally re-enrolled in college after all of my abortive early attempts, and this time at Berkeley, which was a, a pretty challenging university, and I loved it. And I, and it added a whole new dimension to my worldview and my personal philosophy, which would seem to be a little bit at odds with both the title of Martin's book, Threat by Example, and with kind of the way that you seem to be interpreting it. Because I'm no longer uh, that keen on the whole idea of being a threat, uh, if that makes sense to you. If the one one thing I learned at Berkeley, and I went in there not wanting to learn this, I just wanted to get, to get a degree so I could be a substitute teacher and pick up some, some money, because uh, my record company wasn't going to support me anytime soon as far as I could see. Mm -hmm. uh, but I ended up getting kind of, I was going to say reintroduced, but in you know, a lot of ways introduced into society for the first time. You know, punks are supposed to hate society. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, that's to me, that's the ultimate right-wing uh, reactionary attitude. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, the right-wing uh, count British counterpart to Ronald Reagan, famously once said, there is no such thing as society, only individuals. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of when punks are like, destroy society, or I hate society, or I won't live by society's rules. Well, there's certainly a point where the far right and far left meet, because the yeah. far right wants the same thing. They don't want big government, they don't want government, they want to do they, as they, they please. They think that they're the genius that needs to run it everything. Sounds like a right-wing anarchist. Well, yeah, some people got very mad at me, actually. I drew a diagram once where the, the extreme anarchists met at the one point of the circle with the, the far-right libertarians. Yeah, they're a sneeze away from one another in, no, in, so, in some regards. Eventually there's no difference at all. Yeah, half a sneeze. Yeah. Um, and, and similarly, uh, you know, there's authoritarians of both left and right that mm -hmm. want to con control everything. Well, I, I, you know, for the first time in my life, I mean, I had been rebelling against society ever since a ch childhood, literally. I mean, I was, in, you know, in addition to being an arsonist, I was a, a thug, and I, you know, belonged to a street gang, and I ran around with a gun, and I mean, it's just like absolute, you know, you'd almost have to believe in some kind of divine guidance to, to see how many times I could have either been killed or locked up in prison for a long time. Um, and you'd think it should have happened, uh, um, and yet, Somehow, it's kind of like my mom's question to the priest the, the evening that she died. Like, I don't know why God's kept me alive all this long, and you know, she must have, he must have had some reason. <laughs> you know, not ours to ask. But seriously, I mean, that that um, how how I got through some of that stuff, I don't I don't know. But always there was this need to belong to something that was outside the norm mm -hmm. and well I'll tell you actually I, when I kind of formed that worldview was in fourth grade when I was nine years old well actually even earlier this will sound pretty stupid but or trivial my, at least my parents always made fun of me when I said this but indulge me here when I was uh, eight I was like the best speller we used to have spelling class and I was mm -hmm. the best in the whole class and they had a competition 
to determine the best speller of the whole third grade. And I was like, oh, I'm going to win this easy. I, I've memorized the fourth grade spelling book already, blah, blah, blah. And, and it went on for like way past the appointed time and my arch rival was matching me word for word. And then finally, I, I hesitated. I didn't spell it wrong. I didn't even, I just hesitated. I didn't stumble. I hesitated over a favorite word of mine, ironically, peninsula, which is in Michigan, it's part of the state motto and the two peninsulas and stuff. Mm -hmm. If you seek a beautiful peninsula, look around you. I can do it in Latin too if you want. Um, and But I was like, oh, this word, I love this word. So I kind of hesitated and they said, oh, wrong. And and I was like, they rigged that to give it to the more popular good kid mm -hmm. who's taller and his parents are better connected in the church and the school and everything. Yeah. And my and I was like, Mom, Dad, tell them, tell them. And they were just like, Oh, yeah, we don't always get to win. Sometimes you just have to accept it. And mm -hmm. I was like, This whole system is rigged. <laughs> And so it begins. It, it really yeah. did. Uh, that was the last day of school in third grade. Uh, I guess we're talking about like 1956, maybe, mm -hmm. um, or maybe even 50, I don't know, around that time, mid 50s. Um, the beginning of the next term for fourth grade, we you know, each year you do a different subject. This year we started history, world history, and we learned about the Romans. And the first thing I learned about the Romans was that the they had a great empire, but then they became decadent, and then the barbarians came and overwhelmed them and mm -hmm. overran the empire and destroyed everything. I've not, you know, maybe a perfect view of, of history. I have, a, I have a friend in England who's a professor of ancient history, and she gets really angry when I describe that view. We don't call them barbarians in general, anymore. No. They're not. They're not. They're just different. You're not barbarian Americans. They're, they're just not barbarians. No, they're yeah. like uh, just a different culture. Okay, okay. Yeah, but they destroy everything. <laughs> anyway, uh, when I learned about that in fourth grade, my first reaction was, like, I want to be one of those barbarians. Mm -hmm. I literally, I, from then on, I, I'd been almost a perfect student up till third grade. Uh, my grades plummeted, my behavior plummeted, everything. And it was, from then on, it was just a matter of time of waiting until I was big enough to join a street gang. Which, mm -hmm was hopefully going to be modeled after uh, West Side Story, which I saw like four times. There's going to be a lot of singing in your street gang. Yeah, unfortunately <laughs> mine didn't have any of that. It had mostly just like gang fights and stealing and running from the police. And, mm -hmm. and a lot of like gratuitous uh, homophobia. Like, that word didn't exist, but right. you know, basically, if you ever showed any emotion, what, what are you, some kind of fag? Fag, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was... Just as I was starting to read the book, I was talking to a friend, I think he's going to be here tonight, his name is Ryan, who had, who had just completed the book. And there was something that he was curious about, and then as I read the book, uh, this came to me as well, but I have to give him credit because he had the idea before I could have had the idea. But he was wondering that in the book, you don't really ever mention having relationships with people. You know, you'll talk about something that's very personal, like the thought that you would commit suicide, but there's never any talk of having relationships with people throughout essentially the entirety of the book. And I was wondering if that was something that you were conscious about, that there was some part of you you wanted to keep away from there, or why that was. I'm partially conscious of it. Uh, and it wasn't, a, it wasn't a, a decision from the start, uh, more something that I kind of noticed as it was 
the book was nearing its conclusion. Uh, but then, in fact, it is a fairly realistic uh, depiction of how, how it was. I did spend most of that time alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my first book, it does describe a, a relationship. When I went off to live in the wilderness, I went to live with somebody, but that, that ended after a couple of years, and the rest of my mountain adventure was on my own, and you know that kind of fed into the lookout years. And um, my next book will, in fact, deal with relationships in some more detail. And, and my, my fourth book, which is fiction, will deal with probably nothing else, uh, mm. almost nothing else, but it, it will be fiction, but it will be based on a lot of experiences and people and places that I've known. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it, I, I kick that around a lot. I thought it could be a little bit more, a little bit of a drawback, but or at the same time, I could say, well, this basically people want to read this because they want to read about about lookout and the the culture that surrounded it. And my but you do write a fair bit about yourself, so it, it seemed like that was something that was missing from your the, the portrait of yourself that you paint. With, Within the you know the brackets of the book, you know outside of the context of other things that you may have written, just you know within the brackets of the book, uh, it seems like that part isn't there. But there's other parts, like I said, like very personal things that you know, that were troubling to you, the alcoholism, you know, other bad behavior that that is detailed in the book. Um, well, there were lonely years. I don't know how else to. Uh, to put it, and I kind of threw myself into the work, um, and there, there's a, there's a certain mindset. Uh, I mean, I'm not the only person I think that's probably had this experience. But if you have really low self-esteem, there's this one way of thinking: like, well, if I do something really awesome then people will like me mm-hmm. and and then there's a, a rather severe disillusionment when you when you start to find that no people will like to think the really awesome thing that you do that, that doesn't mean they will necessarily like you well punk also has a, a pretty bad propensity for punishing people for success so there's probably always going to be a segment of the population who's going to see that you have a success in this oh, that, thing you've that certainly added to the problem if i had been working in some other field and had that kind of success you know probably i would have had a lot of people following me around begging to go out with me or something mm-hmm. um, i mean it must be tremendously frustrating to know that you create this maybe empire is grandiose but you create this formidable label with this artistic body of work that still resonates for people and that there's going to be a segment of the population who is going to turn their nose up at that or you know fuck you larry you know you, oh yeah no, I, got, I got that almost from I mean, the what first, the fuck other world does that happen in i i got that from the from the, from the first time that we sold a thousand records i mean already we were like so ruining, ruining punk yeah was uh, commercializing it um yeah, I, I don't think that I take, it hurt, but I gradually got used to it. I don't think I took it as seriously as you might. And when you ask what other world did that takes place in, in many worlds. I mean, in 
Have you, have you heard the expression the uh, tall poppy syndrome? It's, it's especially a popular expression in um, England and, in, and even more so in Australia. The idea that one person grows up and starts to stand out from the crowd that the rest of the crowd need to chop them down. Yeah, I know that the, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. Uh, yeah, it's... Also born against there. Uh, it's, it's, kind of it's kind of considered bad form and not in certain cultures to, to, to show off or to stand out, you know, much less so in America. But I think in a lot of uh, music and art scenes, there, there's an element of that. Um, I was just talking to an artist in, in New York the other day, and every time I'd mention somebody that was like successful, like, oh yeah, well they, you know, they're like debasing the medium or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but I can understand from, I come from a working class upbringing as well, and the idea of m moving forward to have a more comfortable life, to have some sense of security and achievement was always something that was very deeply ingrained and tremendously important because the, the, I don't think that there was the feeling that there was a, a great social safety net available. Uh, I was around other people later in life who I felt had uh, a very comfortable upbringing and had a safety net that they could fall into these fluffy pillows if, if they're creative projects, their, their pet projects fell apart. But in you know, what I've read of your writing, it seems like you, you came from a background, a, a, you know, a solidly working class background, where this success would be essential in order to live and thrive. Yeah, well, no, that, that what you described in some extent, to some extent mirrors my experience as I got older. I, I mean, I only knew working class kids as a, a child and teenager, but when I got older, I started meeting like middle class and maybe even upper middle class and fairly privileged kids. Uh, I mean, one of the first big shocks came when I won this scholarship to go to college, which I ruined after like two months from drinking, but uh, when they, they were making fun of me because of I was wearing my greaser clothes from Detroit, you mm -hmm. know, and my pointed greaser shoes, and uh, which I thought were not only perfectly fine, but awesome. They were, right. they were all like, oh my God, no wonder you don't have any friends because like, you know, you dress so weird. Why don't you get like penny loafers like we all have? And I'm like, well, I, you know, really can't afford another pair of shoes even if I wanted them because this is, I got my school clothes and, and that's it. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna, they're going to have to last me all year. And they're like, oh, don't be ridiculous. You know, a pair of shoes only $20 or whatever it was yeah. in those days. And I'm like, you know, that's like a couple weeks living expenses, you talk, and they're like, and they're like, oh, you're so, you're so melodramatic, I mean, you know, it's nothing, and I'm like, you know, what world do you people come from? Yeah, not I mean, the same one. Yeah, and that was the first time I realized how, how different I was, but, of course, nowadays, I would say the majority of people I know are fairly, you know, anywhere from moderately to reasonably well off, or at least what I would have thought of in those days. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know hardly anybody works in factories anymore, which is... Well, there are no factories for anyone oh, to work. Yeah, Unless you hang out with a lot why. of Mexicans, you're probably not encountering many people working in factories. Um, but there was an added uh, complication for, for me is because I had taken this one step further. I mean, yes, we're at, in the neighborhood when I grew up. I mean, basically everybody was concerned about security and making money and... Uh, all the men worked overtime at the plant and they, they, whenever they could and they were conspicuous about like, I mean I was like 
hideously embarrassed as a child because we were the only ones on the block that didn't have a TV aerial on our roof because we didn't have TV yet and mm -hmm. everybody else did. And we were the only ones that had an old junky car and everybody else had new cars because um, yeah. they all worked at the car factories and it was kind of a badge of honor. Um, uh, well, there's two different directions I want to go there. Um, one is the added complication was because I was so fucked up and nihilistic that I didn't want even to succeed at that blue collar level. I was like, I'm just going to throw it all out and mm -hmm. hell with all of you. I, you know, like a lot of the young rebels, I was going to be dead by the time I was 20 or 21 anyway. So, what, yeah, what difference does it make? Yeah, yeah, why should I? Why should I go to the assembly line every day? Um, but there was, you know, you mentioned like this uh, safety net in there. I think the, the safety net, I'm not sure which, if you were talking about financial, I haven't talked, the safety net I think of is more of a, a psychic one. In which case, you know, and I learned this from meeting middle class kids later in life. I, I learned that the way they grew up was, say, they came, then one day they came home and said, hey, I want to be an astronaut when I grow up. Um, and the, Parent, middle class parents say, oh, well, great, let's go get some books in the library and find out what yeah. kind of training you need and what kind of subjects you need to take in school and all, and maybe we can buy some equipment, you can exercise, whatever, yeah. you know. And then a year later, no, I think I'd be a painter instead. Oh, okay, here's some canvas. Yeah, and maybe you want to go to art school on the weekends, we can get yeah, you over there. Can, yeah, basically, yeah. we'll help you do whatever you yeah. want to do. You know, in my background, it was like, well, that's a stupid idea. How are you going to make any money at that? Yeah, you know, no, that, my, I my, my dad, to his credit, he was not wrong about this. The very first time I was asked what I wanted to do when I grew up, I said, I'll be a baseball player. He said, what are you talking about? You can't even catch a ball, which was true. But, <laughs> well, there you go. You know, I think I would like to think a lot of parents would say, okay, well, let's get out and practice catching balls. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and through that process, the kid learns, well, maybe I can get good at this, or no, it may, I'm, I'm terrible at it, so I guess I'll better get a new dream. Mm -hmm. So, I, I, this is one area in the book that I feel like I may have fallen short. I really wanted to emphasize, I think I talk about it at some points, but this, there, there was this conflict within the punk scene in the East Bay scene, too, and within some of the bands. Where there was some of the some of the musicians were solidly blue class blue collar working class kids that were like oh my god I finally found something I can do that works and that mm -hmm. pays the might pay the bills anyway mm -hmm. and that people like and respect and and then there'd be some middle class kid in the band that's like oh this is really fun but I think I want to go off to art school instead yeah or I want to do something different maybe start a acapella band or a chamber orchestra mm -hmm. and and you know and, and at the time I was I mean I remember really identifying with like the the people who were getting left high and dry I'm like hey, you finally found something that works and somebody just wants to throw it away because they're bored or they mm -hmm. want to try something different but I can relate now to the middle class kid like his parents always said sure whatever you want to do you can try and you know, a good chance you can succeed and mm -hmm. we'll be there to back you all the way well, now they own San Francisco, so congratulations. Yeah, some of the, actually, uh, ironically, I, and without naming any names, one of those middle class kids I'm thinking of does, in fact, own a chunk of San Francisco. <laughs> Would he be willing to adopt, maybe? Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. Actually, this is completely unrelated to the, to the punk scene, other than that the guy involved was a 
kind of a fan that liked some of our records, but he was like a very earnest young writer who was like struggling, but came from a pretty solid middle class background where he was like, oh, you want to be a writer? Oh, okay, well, let's get you some notebooks and help set up a, a bookstore and all that. Well, he did publish one reasonably successful, well, semi-successful novel. That resulted in, in meeting an heiress, uh, you know, where, you know, like we're talking billions. And Jesus, why can't I meet an heiress? And, and now, I don't think you want to tell your wife that. No, no, I, I mean that Maybe as a joke. Maybe secretly an heiress, <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, no. No, now he lives in a veritable mansion the size of a city block, and Obama has come to visit, and, yeah. and this is the same schmuck that was like, I'm going to be a, a, a struggling writer, you yeah. know, just like the the Left Bank or Greenwich Village in the early 60s. Yeah, yeah. I don't, he hasn't written a lot lately, but he... He's written a lot uh, of checks, his, his probably. Un, his uncle recently told me that he had uh, had a, a basketball court put in the basement, a full-size basketball court. For, um, mm -hmm. Apparently Obama had like checked it out and... I hope Obama liked it. <laughs> had a good time. Uh, there's a there's another aspect of that dichotomy uh, I I touch on briefly in the book. I don't know if I did it justice, but the difference between the Los Angeles music and punk scene and the San Francisco one, where in Los Angeles you could unhesitatingly say, "Hey, I want to sell some records and get a deal, make you know, make get signed or whatever," and people would say, "Great, good luck." Mm -hmm. and in San Francisco, they would be like. How could you sell out the scene and destroy punk like that? Right. Um, and it 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 exert, exerted a pernicious influence on what I was trying to do because I was always second guessing myself. Like maybe I should just quit, or maybe I should sell the records for a lot less money. I mean, we already did sell them for less than anybody else, and which turned out to maybe have not been so smart because mm -hmm. the the ones that sold them for what we thought was a rip-off price, they're still around today. Right. Yeah. It seems like some people took a reasonable idea, I and mean, if you sign with a major label, you're probably going to get fucked at some point, and sooner rather than later, and certain people took it to a very far degree and became almost quite militant about their, their feelings regarding that issue, which to the rest of the world would seem like, who gives a fuck? But to this tiny little subsect of people, all probably feeding off one another like little termites in a log, those ideas became very strong and, you know, almost like uh, looking at things like a, a Stalinist, you know, where you you would have to go up and confess your, you know, your, your sins to, uh, to I them. I remember watching that Gilman wants these two hardcore bands set up side by side with their merch booth and they both had t-shirts for really cheap but they kept adding things to their signs about how many colors of ink and what kind of material it was and, and kept lowering their prices. Mm -hmm. So yeah. they were like, look at how much we're giving you. And ours cost even $2 less than theirs cost. And then those guys would like come up with even more features and lower their price until like that, one of them was actually giving them away for free because yeah. we, don't, we don't support the corporate system. Yeah, good job, dummy. And they were, yeah. well, they were all rich kids, of course, yeah, like well, a lot of hardcore bands. Uh, yeah. Uh, I wanted to talk about how how we came to know one another to to the degree that we do in that there was um uh i haven't explained this before on this this thing but uh i had the opportunity to stay with a religious sort of religious cult in northern do you, you know what i'm talking about right the church of unlimited devotion uh near ukiah 
Well, no, there's this a been lot. A long... I, that's near my old neighborhood, but there's so many cults up there that I'm not sure I know. Allow me. Well, I can just refresh your, your memory about this thing. Uh, long ago, I guess it was the early 90s, uh, I had a... You know, Jim Jones used to live up, when the People's Temple used to live up there, too. Yeah, that was in the, the same area? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's just one of many others. Fortunately, these folks were, were not quite that bad. Uh, but in the early 90s, I had a, a friend... Yeah, it's, it's sort of jogging my memory, but... Church of Unlimited Demo- Devotion. Devotion, yeah. Well, the, the thing was that these, these people, um, the religious beliefs were an amalgamation of uh, Hare Krishnaism and the worship of the Virgin Mary. Uh, now this is not coming up. And, and the devotion to the Grateful Dead. This is when Jerry was still alive. So they would follow oh, the unlimited dead. Devo- the Road to Unlimited Devotion is a Grateful Dead song. Uh, oh, I guess that, yeah. I, I didn't one even... of the first, the first or second albums. That must be, and the the women were known as the spinners in the Grateful Dead circles because they had this whirling dervish dance. Yeah, and they it's also called fl- catching flies because they like grasp at the air mm-hmm. as they spin. Yeah, that was that was their thing, uh, and they made sort of a fake Guatemalan clothes that they sold uh, to to support themselves. Uh, you know that that style of uh, clothing. Uh, but the thing was that I had a friend uh, named Sanders who had. Uh, fairly recently gotten married to a woman named Sandy and she was pregnant and they wanted to leave society um, and I always thought that he was a really great guy he was one of the one of the few genuinely nice humans that I ever met someone who just seemed to have a certain internal radiance of goodness and the two of them traveled around the country going to different communes or what they would call intentional communities to see if any of them fit them because they wanted to raise this child that was growing in this, this woman's body uh, outside of our, according to them, corrupt society. And they had moved through this series of communes and none of them quite fit until they wound up in this, this one in, in Northern California, which was, I guess, near you. This was the Church of Unlimited Devotion. Do you remember something more specific about where it was located? You say Ukiah, but that's like a, the center of a very large county. Yeah, it was, it was a ways into the woods. I mean, I, I don't know the geography very well, but I know that when I went to visit there, my friend drove from the community to San Francisco to pick me up, which was about like two or more hours, and then drove me back up. It was on the top of a mountain. And it was in an area where there were other communes, and I think that they were taking over for one that had shut down, dis- disbanded at, at the time. And, uh, Green, Greenwood or Greenfield or something like that. There was, there was one in, on top of a mountain near uh, Ukiah like that. Uh, and you're also making me think of the, uh, the hog farm, which was actually up closer to, to me, but it, they have a huge complex right by the house. No, this, this was a but they small... Were tied, they were tied into the Grateful Dead and to the whole LSD thing. No, this was a, a much smaller operation. They had a few animals. Uh, they, they did not have um, a very cohesive living structure. But what they did have was the charismatic leader, uh, whose name was uh, Joseph. And he... Is that where you got your name from? Unfortunately, no. Um, you happen to know him more than Joseph? Uh, I only knew his, I mean, I didn't even know him, but what was happening was at the time that I came to visit my friend, and I had no intention of joining the community, there's no way of living that I would ever want to have, but I wanted to see what was it like to to live in in this community, and my friend had invited me up, and I told him that I intended on writing about it for the zine that I did, because I was writing about all of my experiences traveling around the country, and he was fine with that. Um, And when he brought me up, 
When we got there, Joseph, the leader of the community, was on trial in front of the community because of his behavior. He had, they had found books on mind control that he had. You and mean the, communi- the community was trying the him? Commu- not, yeah, not the community, the, yeah, the, the commune was trying him. It wasn't the authorities. Um, and that he had been engaged in bizarre sexual practices. He would get his uh, wife to drive him into town while his girlfriend, whose name was Kanjari, would give him oral sex in the car and he would have when men would uh, misbehave in the community he'd have the women in the community beat them in, in their ashram um, it was a lot of weird shit going on. none of this sounds all that unusual for those uh, for that country in those times so. for, for me it was it was a very bizarre thing to see because when I was brought in I went into the, the communal room where he was on trial and he was standing up on a, it wasn't really a stage, but he was he was before all the people who were sitting down with the woman, and he had his head down, and the woman had her head down, and people were hurling accusations at them. Um, and when when I came in, they said, "Who are you? You're not part of this community. You you need to leave. Get out of here." So Sanders had to take me out. I wasn't allowed to be privy to this trial. And the next morning, they were forced out of the community. They had like a veil over their head, and they got into a, a van and were driven away to go live with his mother. And they were going to restart the community anew. It was going to be much better. And there was already a new leader who uh, was considerably older than these young folks who uh, some people thought might be a little bit sleazy with the women and some of his behavior. But he, he had a certain charisma that he might be taking Seems over. to go with the territory with cult leaders. Yeah. And, and so it goes, you know, ad, ad infinitum, ad nauseum. So during the time that I was there, I was taking notes and observing things and all this and you're lucky you weren't with the Moonies they were up there too they, they wanted to let you leave yeah, well fortunately my friend probably wouldn't draw me into that sort of environment and I don't think that that's what he would have thought was the ideal community to live in and when I wrote about the thing afterwards for my zine I must have sent you a copy or in some way you saw or heard about this because you said oh there's a newspaper called the Anderson Valley Advertiser, and I'm, they've been really... I was just going to say, uh, the, he's still there. Uh, Bruce is still the editor, and he's the one you want to talk to about cults, because he knows them all. Yeah, he, and you said this, this guy, Bruce, for, at the AVA, was wondering what these people were doing up there, but could never get any information about it, and you should send the thing that you wrote to him, because he would probably want to run this in the paper. Uh, which I did because as someone who considered myself at the time to be an aspiring writer, this was a great opportunity to, to be put into a newspaper. And, and I sent him my story, and, and the story did indeed run. Aaron Conklus writes for him now sometimes. No, good. Um, but what wound up happening was I later received a letter from Sanders, and he said that one morning he woke up and he saw members of the community sitting around looking at this newspaper, and, and people were crying, and they were really upset. And he said... What, what is this? What are you all upset about? And they said, somebody wrote this article about us and it's really terrible. And he saw that the article was written by his friends that he brought into the community. And then they got raided by Dyfus uh, because I had written about how the children were walking about with no shoes and there was no education there and there a, was this character. a local acronym. I don't think Oh, uh, Division of Youth and Family Services. Uh, the child state, protect- state, child protection, child protection. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, 
the feeling was that the children there were had been pulled out of society and were potentially under some sort of threat of... Um, no doubt it was true. There were a lot of children up in those hills. Yeah, and they were pulled out of the community. And he was furious and tremendously hurt about this because he said, oh, I thought you were just going to write this for, for some shitty punk zine. I didn't realize you were going to destroy the community that I wanted to raise my child in. Um, and I, I was very conflicted about how to feel about that because, uh, you know, what I wrote was entirely true. It was a reflection wow. of what was happening there. At the same time, I never wanted to hurt him. Uh, and I didn't necessarily think that the arms of the state was better than those people, although it probably was, considering how the community was run. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's not always easy to, to tell. There were other cases of, of children up in those mountains that were living a life that you would not want, want to wish on anybody, but at the same time there were others who were homeschooled and uh, raised in the wilderness that turned out great, you know, it's, it's hard. To, but it doesn't sound like what you're describing would have. Well, basically, like, how could, your article did not ruin. No, I don't like to think that it, that it, it, did, it did. But it it, No, their, their actions ruined. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was a series of observations. I mean, I was there, most of the food I ate came from the garbage because their farm was dysfunctional and <laughs> these were not people who had farming backgrounds. So they may be able to grow a tomato, but most of the stuff was dumpster dived and I would be eating, you know, wilted fucking lettuce. Ask yourself this, if you were to go back now in your whatever, however old you are now, uh, awareness, and examine that same phenomenon, would you yeah. be more or less sympathetic to them? I'd probably be less sympathetic. Uh, I yeah. mean, yeah, I, I don't yeah, for sure. think you would have to... I mean, in because, my, um, personally, I wouldn't have to hesitate very long to answer that question. Yeah, I mean, I can see, I could see then a trajectory. I can see now a much more clear trajectory of the the doom that they faced in their community. I, I remember um, oh, about ten or fifteen years ago, there was a very shocking case up in Oregon, which sounds a little bit similar, where these uh, thirteen-year-olds had gone over to an older, like an elderly man's house and asked him for money and when he didn't give it to him they stabbed him to death and one of them was the man's grandson or nephew or something. And it, it, it caused the whole community to look at itself because these were basically feral children. Mm -hmm. their, their parents were all hippies and, and punks who basically said, oh the children can raise themselves. Yeah, yeah, good luck. Yeah, so I went down to the, is in Eugene, Oregon actually, and I thought, a town I've never thought much of, that I went down there to have a look at it and there was a lot of talk about this one area in the center of town called, I think the plaza or something, but it, one end was the punks and the other end was the hippies and in both cases they had little children out there and I can't remember which faction it was, but I vivid, must have been the, the punks because there was a lot of 40s. But there was this uh, mother kind of sitting there like, this is like noon, like swallowing beer and smoking cigarettes and blah, blah, blah. And, and a little naked baby, literally completely naked, was crawling across the pavement mm -hmm. and went over the curb. I mean, I was like quite a ways away. I couldn't, I was too far away to do anything at that in that instant, but it was like crawling out into the street, into mm -hmm. traffic. Yeah. And just when it was possibly the last minutes of one of the other 
people like, hey! And she's like, oh shit, and she grabs a hold of it by the ankle and yeah. drags it back up out of Marvelous. the street. And yeah. says, stay over here, damn you! <laughs> it was like, we're talking like a six month or yeah. eight month old baby. Uh, and that kind of summed up um, this that, that sort of community. Uh, then they interviewed the, uh, the murderer's mother he was such a nice boy. He's very into art. He loved making pretty things. And like, well, where? When's the last time you saw him? Oh, two weeks ago. I was out with my new boyfriend on the coast. And uh, mm -hmm. but you know, he was always so good with people. Is and that was kind of the same mentality. I saw it in Berkeley back in the '60s and '70s, and mm -hmm. I saw it up in the in the mountains. It kind of could go a lot wilder because yeah, there's less supervision, so you uh, could essentially virtually none up. Once you get off the main highways up there into the into the hills, unless somebody like you alerts the authorities, they basically yeah, they nobody would have had any idea what was. We going had on. A, we had a similar thing on our mountain, where one of the families, the father, had been sleeping with all of his daughters, and had actually impregnated a couple of them, yeah. and. The, the mother was just like kind of pretending it wasn't happening and then when the there was only one teenage boy when he got to puberty he, the father thought he might be nosing around the, his sisters a little too much mm -hmm. so he took him up the hill and gave him a lecture and then shot him in the arm to say now nah, that's what <laughs> happened learn him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so this continued on for about another year and then one of the hippie ladies um, Said, this is just too much and she alerted the authorities and, and they came up and arrested him and took him to prison and when his wife saw the, the hippie lady in the market in town and, and realized you're the one that turned my husband in mm -hmm. and like but the, you know you, he was raping your daughter though and, and she literally chased her around chased her around the, the store with a butcher knife uh, Oof. <coughs> yeah so, on the, on the plus side, I believe that the couple of the, the children ended up growing up and recovering and having a normal life. Uh, Facebook friends was one of them. Yeah, that's good. Um, like we have to start to wind up because we're running out of time. But oh, a couple, okay. of, yes. couple of things I wanted you to... You need to get on topic here. Uh, yeah, but, but we've covered most of what I wanted to get into. But there are a couple other little things I want to get to before we completely run out of time. Uh, I was curious what your your life is like now. After the you know the label is gone, are you primarily focused on your writing as your creative pursuit? Uh, it seems to have evolved that way. Yeah, I mean, I was still playing some music, but most of the people I played music with were like thousands of miles away, so not a lot of that happened. Um, I'm very consumed with uh, traveling and almost to the point where I, I frequently ask myself whether I'm using it as an escape or whether I'm genuinely trying to see the world and learn as much stuff as I can while I'm still capable of traveling and mm -hmm. being cogent and so on. Did the label leave you comfortable enough that you could do, do this as your uh, lifestyle? Just about uh, borderline. Um, you know, I'm, I, as I as I think I mentioned in the the book, anybody who's ever been poor is c 
kind of always a little bit nervous mm -hmm. and like some people would probably think I'm very well off and others would think like how could you live on such a marginal yeah you know but um, you know part of part of what motivated me to leave when I did uh, you know apart from all the troubles and stresses and depression was like well I think I've got enough saved up now that I could just live and I don't have to do this um, but it wasn't it wasn't well thought out or planned. I, I do describe in the book how if I left the label in a normal way and sold it, and mm -hmm. sold the business, you know, I, yeah, I could be pretty wealthy, but I, I was, you know, I, it sounds dumb, but I was afraid of what the punks would say, and, and it seemed like too much trouble, and so mm -hmm. on, and I said, well, I've got enough to get by. So... Yeah, as long as the economy remains relatively stable and doesn't, I mean, I was kind of, when it collapsed a few years ago, it was getting a little bit scary for me. Um, but I guess I always assumed that I would find new work, and I haven't really. Um, I, I kind of always have had the hunch that, you know, my first big career was with the LSD and mm -hmm. then the second big one was uh, with, with records which is not as different as you would think I mean you're both in both cases you're uh, distributing cultural artifacts mm -hmm. that hopefully will exert a transformative uh, impact and effect on society and but you've also consistently been a writer well yeah that's, uh, that's actually the very first I mean I did that before I did anything yeah. before I even joined the street game. so I mean yeah, probably I, I, I tried to write my first book when I was 10 so who were you under the influence of at, at that time when you first started writing I mean, the barbarians okay yeah, but I mean, were any of those barbarians writing books like were there writers that, no that my you first I, my first influence well, if, you, if you recall me mentioning how when I discovered the barbarians destroying Rome that oh I, yeah, I, yeah yeah I became obsessed with that and I just decided to write a book about archaeologists excavating the ruins of America in the year 3000 mm -hmm. and trying to figure out how such a great empire had fallen low or been destroyed and so basically they were excavating Detroit mm -hmm. and, and so I was kind of Detroit probably looks like that now so. it probably does but at that time of course Detroit was very prosperous mm -hmm. and I, I hated it as a result it was very polluted but it was a lot of money yeah, and I, I kind of used it, I mean, we're, bear in mind we're talking about a nine or ten year old here. Mm -hmm. I, I used however much I wrote of it as a vehicle for decrying everything I saw that was wrong with society and with Detroit and with America. And right. I actually, believe it or not, I blamed the automobile a, a great deal because it, it had overtaken the whole landscape mm -hmm. and poisoned everybody with lead, just like the Romans were published, uh, poisoned by their lead pipes. Right. Um, unfortunately, I didn't have the perseverance to really finish this. And mm -hmm. My second big writing pro project was to do a parody class newspaper in seventh grade. Was this under the influence of Mad Magazine at all? Not really, because uh, my parents did not really approve of Mad Magazine, but I, I did get the chance to look at it once in a while. Um, it, no, it, it may have been without my being conscious of it, but what really griped me was the the teacher got the class to get together and make a newspaper which was great i wanted to be in a newspaper but she controlled everything they wrote and all it was all this like 
puff stories about how the whole class is excited about the new homework assignment. Mm -hmm. and not, no, they're not. So I made a, it was called the 52 Star News because there were 52 students in the class. Mm -hmm. Baby boom years, they, they yeah. had classes that yeah. big. And so I started the 52 Asterisk News <laughs> and made merciless fun of everything. And I mean, literally in, in those days, you know, no Xerox or nothing, I had to type on a manual typewriter um, with couple sheets of carbon paper so mm -hmm. I could make three copies at once right. and then pass them around. <laughs> and, and yet it was a hit. It was the first time people ever gave me any respect for anything that creative that I tried to do. You could have been the uh, Paul Krasner of your school. But both my parents and the teachers uh, quickly put a stop to it after the second or third issue. Mm -hmm. um, my mom said, why don't you like these? Actually, years later when I started Lookout Magazine, she said, why are you writing that kind of like stuff. Why don't you just go right to the New York Times? <laughs> they weren't hiring that week. Well, that's what uh, I said, I, you know, but I, I never tried. Uh, a few days ago I, I saw on Facebook uh, my friend uh, Josh Alvarez, his brother, put up a picture of him uh, many years ago looking like a, a forlorn Filipino wearing a Green Day t-shirt and uh, many people wrote comments and one person's comment that was on there said Lookout Records was my salvation uh, and I was wondering if you if you have any feelings about how for some people and this kind of touches on what we talked about earlier where some people take these things you know very deeply and they can say this thing saved my life or this thing was my salvation do you ever reflect on, on your role in having put forward things that have had that kind of effect on people's lives. It's, you know, I, I, especially since writing these books, I've been hearing things like that fairly frequently. And uh, to be honest, I, I never know quite what to, to think. I mean, it's not that I don't respect what we did and, and the artists that we worked with and the way in which we did it. But honestly, most of the time when somebody tells me, oh, that really changed my life or it uh, really formed who I am today or something, I, I have to admit a certain part of me goes, really? Because like, it was like some dumb punk rock records. Um, and but you, so you can't see what it would be about the releases that would have that kind of effect on someone? Oh, yeah, I, I think what... Well, I guess the part that bewilders me is that you take any band or lyrics that seriously that you're going to let them change your whole life, and yet, to be fair, there were times in my life when I thought bands were that great and that important, too. Um, I, I think, or at least I would like to think, that what really affected them was the idea that somebody could create their own kind of parallel society or world. You know, I mentioned earlier, like learning about getting reintegrated into society through my, my studies at, at Berkeley, but not in the sense that like, okay, now I'm going to go get a job at an advertising agency, but oh, I can see now that you don't have to like put all your energy into destroying everything, that mm -hmm. you can, as the song goes, take what you need and leave the rest, you can learn how to operate a system or an organization or a group of people. You can cooperate with a larger society when it is to your mutual benefit and you can produce something that 
is not just for a handful of malcontents, but mm -hmm. that might be of interest to more and more people. It, it, I, I tried to to state more than once in you know my purpose for making a record of this band was not to like just for a hundred or a thousand punks to say look at this is our our culture. Mm -hmm. I made it because it was good music, not because it was part of some scene or anything in particular, but because it was good music and that I felt there were probably millions of people out there in the world that could benefit from hearing it. Mm -hmm. You know, not necessarily that it would become their new philosophy or that they would join a social movement or an anti-social movement, but that, 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 that it would enhance their life in some way to, mm -hmm. to hear this music. And so I never had a problem with whether we sold a thousand or a hundred thousand or ten million records of any particular thing, as long as it was done according to ethical principles. Mm -hmm. And I wholeheartedly believed then and still do, despite my mistakes and the mishaps, it is possible to do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, it gets a lot more complicated when you're dealing in millions. And, but, you know, the basic principles remain the same. I think that's that's the way that, that you're being complimented. I don't think that it's so much that people are so focused on the sloganeering of a 16-year-old, you know, singing on this record, although maybe at, at the time there was, but they do. But, yeah. the, but I think that there's also this, this sense of being that there's a community of outsiders that is, that is welcoming and that shows people, uh, you know, as you're saying, like the way you, you, can, you can create this thing. It's not done by people living high above you on a mountain. You could create this record, be involved in this creative process. And I think that the punk, at least by my reckoning and, and the people that I've known who've taken a lot out of it, is never meant to be excluded from the society, but finding different ways of living and then applying that forward into the world. And a lot of the people that I know who were positively influenced by punk went on to be teachers and people involved in the community in a really positive way. So it wasn't so much this person's particular lyric, although maybe that's a starting point, but more like the, the threat by example was not to leave the society, but to create something that was better. And by putting these things out in an ethical manner and by making weird people feel like they could do something, I think it ultimately had a you know, tremendously positive effect on many people. Yes, I'll buy that. And I think it's something. I mean, maybe it's something that you you want to sort of accept that maybe there's a there's a an element of contradiction in you that want to say, ah, oh, these are just a bunch of stupid records. But maybe there's a value in saying, well, you know, I, I accept that. I don't. Obviously, I don't believe there are a bunch of stupid records, uh, and so I'm probably being a little too dismissive there. Uh, I mean, some of them were pretty dumb, <laughs> um, but still fun, and some of them were just plain dumb. But some of them were you know, positively transcendent and deserve to live forever, which I guess is the point of, of making art in the, in the first place. Yeah, right. by means of uh, wrapping up, I wanted you, you to read uh, something. Uh, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but um, I printed out the, the last paragraph that you wrote for the essay for Threat by Example, which, you know, as you mentioned earlier, you haven't read for a long time, and the book's long out of print, so... Uh, you know, some many of the people who listen to this probably don't even have access to the, the book, and I was curious to see if you could read the the paragraph and then what you think of it today. Uh, and this is, it's fairly short. And, and again, I'm sorry if this puts you on the I spot. I wish you but, would have taken the last paragraph from my current book. Yeah, but everybody has read your current book, presumably. Uh, who's, hopefully. Yeah. So if you could just read that aloud. 
and then tell me you know how you feel about it. Oh. If I can pass anything on to those who go after me, it will be the ability to dream, the refusal to accept things the way they are, the, the insistent belief that anything is possible. I've never been a religious person. Catholic school cured me of that. But I have an almost mystical belief in the power of the mind, or maybe more specifically, the power of the heart. Because that, as far as I'm concerned, is where hopes and dreams are born and everything else that is good and beautiful and true. Put another way, underneath it all is a simple four-letter word that I don't like to toss around too casually, but there's no way I could finish this essay without it. It's called love, and don't ever forget it, because that's all there really is. And what does uh, 2016 Larry think about that as a summation? Um, I could see that I was still a little more under the hippie influence than I might have realized or would have liked to have been. You think um, that's a bad thing in retrospect? I think that I could have, I could have said those things a little bit better. Um, I mean, I... I, I started out, when I started out reading, and I, I, my first reaction was like, oh, this isn't too bad. Um, this is like, you know, this is a valuable message. Um, but by, when it gets into the center of it, it, it kind of reminds me of what I was trying to describe to you about the, the potheads or mentality. You know, like where I get all the power, the mystical, the almost mystical belief in the power of the mind and the power of the heart and hopes and dreams. You know, it's very self-centered. Um, you know, in you know, you know, towards a good end. I, I well, mean, what it says is in stark contrast to the, the nihilism that certainly was an element that that moved through oh, punk yeah, to a yeah, great no, a degree. Lot of punks, a lot of punks would have dismissed this right out of hand. There's a certain things like I've never been a religious person. Catholic school me, Catholic school cured me of that. Um, that's you. You hear it a lot from people. You know, oh, I'm a recovering Catholic or whatever, and you know, I don't have any of that uh, hostility now. I mean, there's horrible people who are Catholics, and there's wonderful people who are Catholics. Um, you know, my mom's funeral was in a Catholic church, and it was, uh, you know, one of the best. It was the best funeral ever, at least that I've ever attended. And, mm -hmm. um, and I spoke up there on the altar. You know, I, I don't, I would not call myself a religious person, but, I, you know, if you had to say, if I had to fill out a box, I would say, yeah, I'm Catholic. I was born Catholic. I'll probably die Catholic. I'm a, just like I was born a Democrat. I mean, that's just where I live. That's what you were. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that kind of little snippy thing about, you know, kind of, I'm not religious, and the hell with the Catholics, and but I have a mystical belief, like, well, if I, you know, that is kind of religion. You know, it's like my own religion. So, you know, it gets a little verbose in the middle, but I like I like the the part the best is the idea of passing things on to someone who goes after me, and the and then the ability to dream and to. Re refusal to 
accept things the way they are and the insistent belief that anything is possible, I would diverge from I'm not quite sure. Well, I mean, in theory, anything is possible. I mean, it's an infinite universe, right? Mm -hmm. Most likely, you're not going to be able to teleport yourself to the next star system, but maybe you will. Somebody will. You take I, enough LSD, maybe. <laughs> maybe. No, no, I, I honestly believe that people will travel to other star systems, probably not in my lifetime, although it would be a great adventure if they... I mean, I mean if, you're, if you're familiar with some of the latest developments in quantum physics, uh, it's certainly becoming within the realm. The idea of now that we, we can move faster than the speed of light, which you know, if I'm going to try to convince you I'm no hippie, I'm probably not doing a good job. Uh, yeah, I, you know, the other thing, I mean, I, it's hard to argue against love. And, you know, it's a good idea to, to imbue everything you do with it. But it's the kind of thing you don't want to talk too much about, you know, sort of more refer to it and let people find it, kind of like God, you know, if people are going to have a God, you know, don't force feed them yours, let them find the one that works for them. Mm -hmm. And trouble with a uh, hippie version of love was, uh, I, I don't, I think I, I slightly referred to it in the book, but like standing on a corner, here, have a flower. You know, what, don't you believe in love? <laughs> yeah, fuck you. <laughs> I mean, literally, we did that. So, um, you know, considering I think this was, yeah, 1989, I could have done a lot worse in 1989. I'm glad that Martin saw fit to, to print it. I'm a little surprised in a way that he did because he was uh, considered more anti antagonistic a young man at that time than he would be later in life um, so I think he I think he really did want to pose a threat to something so I read an interview not too long ago with him talking about his relationship with Tim Yohannan which was brought up a lot of feelings for me because I mean those two were like you know like Batman and the Boy Wonder, I don't know, and, and you know, inseparable and stuff back in the day. And I wondered how, you know, they were so different at the mm -hmm. same time. You know, Martin was pretty much got the ed leading edge, and Tim was like, oh, "That's all a bunch of bullshit." You know, never stopped smoking his cigarettes yeah. and eating his greasy ribs. Um, yeah, and then when I I first saw him, I, I thought, like, Tim almost, like, controlled Martin as a, as a, as like a little puppet, and yet over time, over the years, Martin came into his own, and, you know, in this, in this interview describing it, it was, it was quite fascinating to watch that transition. Where, where was that interview? I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, doesn't seem like it was that long ago, uh, but... Who knows? Might be on the internet. You never know. Uh, it's probably where I. That's where I read most things these days. Right. Um, yeah. But you know, Martin's Martin's still with us and still doing stuff. And now he was one of my uh, interview subjects, uh, which was one of my favorite interviews of the series. Was he funny? Oh yeah. See, that's the fun. That's the thing is, it, back in those days, he wasn't that funny. I yeah. mean, he he could be fun, 
snide and sarcastic about like if you were down well very much a teenager. Yeah, I had the feeling that I had to be very on my toes in interviewing him. Yeah, he, he was especially that way. He would always be trying to catch you out saying something incorrect. And yeah. Like, uh, yeah, well you don't really get what the edge is about, do you? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but the last last time I saw him in person I think was at a wedding quite a few years ago. But by that time, I mean, he just was pretty lighthearted about everything. He still had a sharp tongue, but you know, I do too. Um, now you've seen his postings on uh, Facebook, I assume. Yeah, I mean that they they skate pretty close to the edge of where I, I don't know whether I still don't know whether I'm being made fun of or. Uh, and I don't mean regarding you. No, I just I know. mean it's, you know. yeah, no, where you know where he yeah he says these com- completely off the wall things where wait. What, what part of this is the joke and what part of this is real? I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, there was an element of that even when he was a teenager with his fanzine. It's just that it's infinitely more refined <laughs> yes. and subtle yeah. these days. Subtlety was not a quality that he, uh, he, he had in those days. I, in fact, there was a time when, probably in the 90s, when we were having an argument in... I wrote in my column that well, he was Maxim Rock and Roll had just denounced the lookout for gentrification because I said we had moved into this abandoned corner of downtown Berkeley and I hoped we could revitalize it and maybe mm-hmm. a cafe or an art store or something would open up and they you're gentrifying it and I was like what I'm trying to improve it uh, and and I said look Martin moved his press into the mission and so he's gent- and gentrifying that, and he called me up, and I was like, we're not gentrifying it, we're like part of the culture, <laughs> and I later saw him with a, his hand in a cast, apparently he got so angry and slammed the phone down so hard on me that he broke his hand. Jesus, <laughs> man. It's not the only time that that happened. Wow, that is an intensity of feeling. Yeah, he's a very intense guy, but yeah. uh, we can smile about it now, but at the time it seemed terrible. I'm sure. Well, anyways, uh, we are out of time, but thank you very much for uh, talking with me for this, and for coming out to Philly to do the event, which I think is it's a privilege. Be great I've always wondered about Philadelphia, and my experiences here are very limited uh, until this point. It's an interesting city. I don't know how much you're going to wind up seeing while you're here. Probably not too much, but you got a nice bits block. Bits and pieces. Yeah. Each time I've been here has been short, but I've yeah. seen a couple more bits and pieces. Well, consider moving here at some point. It's cheaper than fucking New well, York. Well, I, I don't yeah, I don't think we discussed it in the interview, but I'm uh, going to be homeless soon. They're tearing down my house in New York. So. Take a look around. Not so bad here. Uh, well, anyways, uh, again, thank you. and, and Thank you for having me. <laughs>